Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to a five-part series on supply chain data management. This series is sponsored by Ascent Compliance. Ascent Compliance provides cloud-based SaaS solutions that help companies manage their supply chain data, facilitate stakeholder and supply chain education on regulatory and program requirements, and increase transparency between businesses. Ascent helps companies overcome the challenge of meeting their compliance business requirements. The uh, Finally, Ascent streamlines the data exchange process for suppliers, making it easier for them to comply with their customers' data requests. For more information, check out their website, ascentcompliance.com. In this podcast series, I visit with several members of the Ascent Compliance team to visit about supply chain data management. We consider the synergies between different types of compliance disciplines, the impacts on organizations of compliance failures in this area, and what are some of the drivers for continued legislation and regulation in this area. It is a fascinating series. I know you will enjoy it. Thank you very much for listening. In this episode, I visit with Jared Connors. Jared is the Senior Subject Matter Expert, Corporate Social Responsibility at Ascent Compliance. We consider the impact on organizations which have a supply chain compliance failure. This podcast series is a special presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode, and today I'm joined by Jared Connors. Jared is a senior subject matter expert, corporate social responsibility at Ascent. Jared, uh, first of all, welcome. Tom, thank you. It's good to be doing another um, podcast with you again. Jared, uh, we're going to take things in a little bit different direction today because I wanted to explore with you the organizational impact of compliance failures and uh, really start with if you could give uh, two or three examples of compliance failures, not only within a CSR or corporate social responsibility, but also product regulation. Sure. Actually, there's some really great examples out there of, of organizations that have had a few impacts to their uh, because of their CSR and their product substance regulation programs. Um, and some of them have actually come out really smelling like a rose and other ones have really had to go back and understand what the impact means to them and how they have to uh, address those issues. And obviously, it costs them some some, uh, uh, you know, pretty significant dollars in resource time. And, and the first one I'm going to give is a really great story of a company who had a CSR failure, um, but they are actually the ones that, that revealed this failure to the broader world, to the globe. And they're the ones that um, really said, we need to do something about this because we uncovered it. And this is a very well-known case study in the CSR world to do with Nestle and shrimp boat fleets in um uh, near Thailand in the Java Sea, I think. And uh, basically, the story goes very simply because a lot of people in CSR are aware of this one, and those who are not can easily Google this and, and look this up. Uh, but this is a situation where they found some labor rights violations on these you know, um, commercial shrimp boat fleets. 
And Nestle came forward and said, wait a second, here's something we have to do. Um, we have to address these issues into our supply chain. And these are may not even necessarily be tier one suppliers that have this issue. And so how did they go about this issue? Basically, what they're doing is they're trying to create a program to address these issues, gain transparency within their supply chain, and make their supply chain aware of, of their expectations to comply with labor laws uh, uh, locally and um, expectations for modern-day slavery regulations. And, and this is one of those examples of a company who said, we have a problem. Um, and they came forward. And from coming forward with saying, we have a problem, they came out really, truly, in my mind, as a great example of a company who did probably the best possible job they could with addressing the risk issue because they they opened their own kimono. They were willing to talk about what was going on. And then, of course, they're talking about what they needed to be able to do about it. Another example uh, in the product regulatory space of really a true compliance failure is an organization for that had a gaming console that was actually had to go through a product recall because of a substance violation in their product. Not as widely known, but for those of us in the materials compliance space, many of us probably recall this story uh, a few years back where an organization had to go through a massive recall because of uh, a substance violation. Essentially, they had um, you know higher parts per million allowable limit than the allowable limit uh, of a particular material in their gaming console, and that was a major wake-up call for organizations to say, "Oh, gee, maybe I really do need to be tracking this information through my supply chain, um, and I can't be going about these things, um, you know, kind of half-baked, if you will. I need to be able to understand my materials compliance." Uh, and, and not accept basic certificates. And so what that story really taught us was while we were gathering or, or this organization may have been gathering information from um, their suppliers, they may not have been gathering enough information or the right information. So that was a wake-up call for companies and their materials compliance and their corporate social responsibility programs to say, gee, what's the right information I should be chasing and how should I be evaluating this? And it really lends to um, you know, what are you trying to get out of your program? What do you view as successful? Is it simply just checking a box and having that response from a supplier that may not necessarily be validated? Or are you actually trying to walk the talk here of what your code of conduct or your your expectations that you may publish on your site website or even complying with regulation says to go about validation and proper data collection to understand truly what's not only in your products, but how they're being manufactured? Jared, um, from that, I would like to ask you uh, to explain a little bit about how someone would think through understanding the cost of compliance. Yeah, that's that's a really good one because obviously, in these examples, companies these companies really had to address you know what's the cost of doing this going forward. And in the Nestle example, if you read a, a bit about that case study, it's an amazing example of a company that said we're not doing enough, and so the cost of going about this. Um, is going to increase on us, and we're willing to accept that because of what we uncovered. Now, there are other examples of organizations who said, well, you know, my cost of compliance has been pretty steady over time, even with the increase in regulations, because I've always been proactive to deal with these things. And we hear this a lot. We hear from companies going, gosh, you know, just, just my ramp up to get into this 
means that uh, I'm going to have a bit of a spike in the beginning because I have to go about not just data collection, but I have to create a management procedure. I have to assign oversight of this. I have to be able to have actionable intelligence and give feedback with my suppliers. Uh, And then I have to do something about it. I'm going to have to write reports. And, And you see a lot of these examples with organizations addressing responsible minerals program. This is one tiny example in the CSR space of companies that have pushed back for a long time, if you will, on the conflict mineral space. Ah, I don't need to do that. I'm not a U.S. public filer. Oh, I, 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 you know, I'm getting asked by my customers, but they're not big spends for me. Or, um, or you know, oh, I, I, I don't see that I'm having an impact on issues within these hot zones, if you will, like the Democratic Republic of Congo. And, and why should I get into this? I don't necessarily have any pressure. And then, and then something happens. A trigger happens for them. And they need to jump into the mix. And and oftentimes in in the responsible minerals or conflict mineral space, that trigger is organizations are going beyond what the regulation requires. And so what that means is, is that there is a legal reporting obligation for conflict minerals to do with the sourcing of tin, tantalum, tungsten, and gold. And you see so many organizations that are now leaving the nest, if you will, and saying, well, that's just one aspect of the materials that go into or, or four tiny minerals that go into my products. And and I'm going to go beyond that now. And so you see these industry leaders in automotive and elect- electronics and aerospace and retail, and they're saying, well, supplier, you've been pushing back on me because you don't want to address a legal reporting obligation. But for me, this is no longer that. I'm leaving that legal reporting obligation behind, and I'm actually now walking the talk of true responsible mineral sourcing. And, and the impact of those suppliers has been significant because they have to jump into the mix right now if they want to maintain that business with those customers. And they have to jump in with both feet, and they have to start collecting data that they've never done before. And you see this, and, and, and you know, CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, you see this with the maturity level of different geographies, I would say, or organizations. And, and my example of that is Europe always seems to be ahead of Western United States with some of their CSR programs. Now, not every U.S. company is, is behind this and not every European company is, is leading uh, the charge, if you will. But there are a lot of European organizations that have been very, very good at saying, you know, we have a strong commitment to this from the top down. And you see this again with the EU conflict minerals legislation that's not even due out for another two years. You see companies saying, I know my cost of compliance is going to be greater if I wait until the regulation starts. So therefore, I'm going to get started right now. And the interesting part about those companies who say that and then beginning of the calls that we have with them, most of them don't actually even have a legal reporting obligation to European conflict minerals. But they know that they um, should be doing these things and they, they could be um, like the U.S. regulation involved in a name and shame game. And so they're saying, well, I'm going to go ahead and get ahead of this now. I'm going to jump into this now, even though I may not have a legal re- or reporting obligation in 2021, I'm not going to hesitate to start now. And that is because I know that if I wait and I'm pressured to go about doing it, later on, and I'm the only one standing when the music stops without a chair, my cost of compliance is going to be greater than the money that I would have spent for two years or one and a half years in advance to get started now. And you see this a lot with CSR programs where companies say, I'm starting to get pressure to go out and have code of conduct surveys with my supply chain to address a variety of risks. 
but I know that I'm not necessarily going to get impacted by my suppliers tomorrow. However, because of the cost of getting this planting the seed with these suppliers and starting to ramp them up on behavior change, I'm going to go ahead and start asking for this now. And that's a real paradigm shift in companies because this is if you think about that, that's companies saying, I want to go out and, and spend money, essentially. I want to go out and assign resources to address an issue that I don't necessarily have an obligation for today, but I know I'm going to have tomorrow, and therefore I want to save money and time by getting into the water slowly right now. That's a, that's a big cultural change that I see in organizations all over the globe. Jared, what would you say a compliance process should look like? Well, that's a really good question because one thing that, that's, a, that's missed, I think, on some companies, especially maybe some smaller organizations who say, well, I need to have this CSR survey, if you will, to my suppliers. I need to gather some information on their policies and procedures, or I need to have a conflict minerals program, or I need to have a human trafficking and slavery program, or even a product regulatory program to go out and gather substance data within my products from my suppliers. Everybody thinks you just jump in and start collecting data, and, and that's 100% false. What you need to have up front is a program that says, here's what my goals are. Here's what my the expectations I'm putting on myself are. And then the the data collection or the campaign throughout your year is your performance to your own expectations. And then you report on that performance. And so those companies who kind of jump in and just immediately tomorrow start surveying suppliers oftentimes have this this wake-up call where they say, oh boy, I, I don't think I was aware of what the kind of information I was going to receive back. And I'm unprepared on how to deal with these issues. And that's simply because they didn't have a process, because they didn't have the, the first step in the process is management procedure. What am I going to do? How am I going to address issues as they arise? What kind of issues may I, may I encounter along the way? And that management procedure is basically your, your guide to take you through your year, through your compliance program for your, for your reporting period. And, and then by starting with that management procedure, it really lays out what you're going to be doing throughout your year. And then it also sets the next steps of the workflow that might be data collection or data analysis, depending on how you gather the data, whether it's direct or indirectly from your third parties, your suppliers. And then also, how am I going to set expectations for corrective actions? Am I going to make all-out demands that suppliers immediately have visibility to their labor practices and, and the with the supplier, their suppliers or supplier suppliers? Um, what's the expectation look like and how am I going to set expectation for corrective action? And then, of course, what am I going to do and, and what am I going to set for the next year and what am I going to report on? These are really important aspects to understand. So you start with your management procedure, you go through your data collection analysis, and then you're going to go through your corrective action or your remediation phase, and then you're going to get into your reporting. What does my reporting look like? What, what kind of KPIs am I going to try and set? I have a really good example of a company um, this last year that I encountered and this particular company, I met them at a conference and they were talking to me and said, we had set um, an expectation that we were going to report on the results of our CSR survey. And all of our results came back very bad. And I said, let me guess, this is the first year you're doing this? And they said, yes, we need your help because it came back really bad and we can't publish that our suppliers are bad across the board. Well, are, are, are your suppliers truly bad or are your suppliers learning about this for the first time? 
well, yeah, we're, they, they constantly told us that we were the first ones to ask them this. Okay, so does that make them necessarily bad because you're trying to set an expectation for something that they may never have been aware of before? And so rather than maybe setting the expectation right off that you're going to publish KPIs on everything you gather from your suppliers, maybe you're going to focus your reporting on planting the seed with your suppliers and, and ramping them up and, and helping them walk the path, holding their hand and taking them down the road to make these expectations or, or to make these changes. And that's what's really important. That those are the most effective programs. And that's led by companies who say, I'm going to stop before I even get started. And I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write what I'm going to be doing for the year. So I understand how I'm going to gather the data and what I'm going to report, be reporting to. And then how I'm going to use that data for the next year and the next year and the next year. And those are clearly the most uh, effective programs and the most cost-effective programs if you, if you really uh, break that down. So, Jared, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but this has been a fascinating exploration of not only the organizational impact of compliance failures, but also what a compliance process might look like. I hope you'll join us tomorrow for our final episode where we look at market drivers for continued legislation. Jared, I greatly look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Supply Chain Data Management sponsored by Ascent Compliance. I hope you'll join us again for another episode. You can find out more about Ascent by checking out their website, ascentcompliance.com. This special five-part podcast series on supply chain data management is a special presentation This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.